Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been, for several weeks, making our way through Milton's Paradise Regained, his brief epic, as he called it, as opposed to the full-scale epic of Paradise Lost, published after Paradise Lost, along with his tragic drama, Samson Agonistes, which, after this week, I intend to go on to discuss. We hope today to culminate and wrap up our discussion of Paradise Regained. Paradise Regained and Samson Agonistes are not as well known as the great epic, and yet, in my view, they are at least as rich and profound and extend Milton's vision into new areas. We have been following the plot which is based on the temptation of Christ in the wilderness by Satan in the Gospel account, specifically the Gospel of Luke. Milton chooses the Luke version rather than the Matthew version because he likes the order of the temptations in Luke. And in Luke, those temptations, to recap, are the first temptation, turn these stones into bread, which Milton interprets as the temptation of giving up faith in God for the sake of material survival and necessity. And the response is, man does not live by bread alone. The second temptation Milton enormously expands. That is the temptation of the earthly kingdoms in Luke. And as we've been seeing for a couple of weeks now, those temptations expand into a whole spectrum of temptations, types of temptation that any human being could be faced with in this world. These are not unique to tempting the spiritual being of the Son of God. Jesus is human, fully human, and these are human temptations. This means something to us. We can be tempted in this way, and we could fall in this way. Therefore, when there is something at stake for Jesus, there is something at stake for all human beings. And the range of temptations expanded by Milton in the second temptation range, as I see it, from temptations at first grounded in physical desires and appetites, ranging upwards to temptations of ambition. And it is in the temptations of ambition that we meet the actual earthly kingdoms. In Luke, there is simply a generic reference to all the kingdoms of the earth. Milton expands that to three specific kingdoms, each representing a type of worldliness, a type of temptation to fall for the best of reasons. First, the temptation of Parthia to the east, Parthia is the temptation of a kingdom of sheer warlike power. This is the temptation that we might say in the contemporary moment of Vladimir Putin. Jesus rejects that and 
Satan redirects Jesus' attention through what he amusingly calls in line 56 of book four, my airy microscope, points him to the west where there is Rome. Rome is the kingdom, not just of power, but of civility, of law, of higher civilization, basically of the great imperial dream. Jesus rejects that, sees through the imperialistic sham, and Satan is nonplussed but never gives up. And therefore, when we left off last time, had just pointed Jesus to the south, or rather southwest, to a third kingdom, the kingdom of Athens. The kingdom of Athens is a little different from the other two, and Satan builds it that way. This takes place in book four, around line 210. Satan blithely says, therefore, let pass, as they are transitory, the kingdoms of this world. Okay, I grant you, those are just transitory. Let those go by. And thou thyself seemst otherwise inclined than to a worldly crown, addicted more to contemplation and profound dispute. And goes on to say, be famous then for wisdom. That is the temptation of Athens, the temptation of wisdom, the temptation more widely of culture, classical culture. All knowledge is not couched in Moses' law, Satan says. And the Gentiles also know and write and teach to admiration led by nature's light. There is light of the spirit, but there's also nature's light. And goes on into an epic catalog of all the great names and places of classical culture, the Lyceum and the Stoa, Homer and the Tragedians, the orators, and so forth and so on. And finally, because Satan is always lying by twisting the truth, seems to be offering something that a Miltonic character ought to value, and that is something inward rather than outward. These rules will render thee a king complete within thyself, much more with empire joined. Jesus responds in such a way as to provoke down through the long history of Milton criticism, yet another Milton controversy, although I have to say that I think it's largely an unnecessary one based on a mistaken understanding of what is going on in the passage of Jesus' rejection in no uncertain terms of the temptation of classical culture. Admittedly, Jesus sounds intransigent. He sounds sour, almost bitter. And he has been taken by a good number of eminent and by no means stupid Milton critics to be recanting 
his previous humanism, the, the classical humanism of his entire earlier career. Famous Melton critic Douglas Bush said that it is painful, to, quote, painful to watch Milton torn and rending some of the main roots of his being. Robert Hazard Adams, another Milton critic, speaks of Milton's provincial contempt for the classics in this passage. But as I say, not every critic reads it that way. Northrop Frye most certainly does not. And I do not either for what it's worth. And I think it's much better to read it in a different way, a way that makes much profounder sense out of this passage than merely a Milton embittered and disillusioned after the failure of the revolution, after the failure of all his hopes to be retreating into almost a kind of Christian fundamentalist anti-intellectualism. I don't think that's what Christ is saying here. I think it's careful, we have to be careful to see exactly the terms that Satan is offering. Though admittedly, Christ's rejections seem to be rejecting everything without condition out of classical culture. He says, for example, these are false or little else but dreams, conjectures, fancies built on nothing firm, all of classical thought seemingly just dismissed and dismissing the classical thinkers, the philosophers and sages of Greek and Roman culture, ignorant of themselves, of God much more, of how the world began, how man fell degraded by himself. And in themselves, these sages seek virtue and give no credit to God. Then, even worse, the author of Paradise Regained, the man who had probably read more books than any man in England of his time, has Jesus dismissed the reading of books altogether, or so it would seem. However, many books wise men have said are wearisome, who reads incessantly and to his reading brings not a spirit and judgment equal or superior, then he is deep versed in books and shallow in himself. Echoing there, no doubt, the book of Ecclesiastes, saying of the making of books, there is no end. And not just classical thought, but classical art, classical literature cannot compare with the art of the poetry of the Bible, and in fact, a commonplace of Milton's time, rather Greece from us, these arts derived. And goes on to make fun of classical style, their swelling epithets, thick laid as varnish on a harlot's cheek, and so forth. And it does indeed seem like some sort of provincial, naive contempt for the classics. But we know in Milton to expect that the appearance 
is not the reality, and in fact, the appearance is usually exactly the opposite of the reality. All the way from the beginning of Paradise Lost, where Satan made all those magnificent heroic speeches, and we know by now it was all hollow. It was all a lie. And Milton is constantly teaching his readers never accept appearances, always look beneath appearances, look for the flaw in that alluring surface argument. And the flaw, one way to put it here, is this. Milton is usually described as a Christian humanist, a noun with an adjective. It might be less misleading, however, if we described Milton as a humanist Christian on the assumption that the noun takes priority over the adjective that modifies it. The Christian has to come first and have priority. If that is the case, then the humanist has a place to be without misleading. But what Satan is really tempting Jesus to do, and this is exactly the same as in all of the other temptations. The temptation of bread is the temptation of substituting material goods and survival for the word not saying that it's needed in addition, but turning the argument into an either-or. We might go so far as to say that most either-or arguments in this world are usually diabolic in their basis, and at least that is the case here. What Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to cast away the Christian and become simply a humanist to espouse classical culture instead of biblical culture. And that would be a fatal mistake. If Jesus, as he does, sticks to his biblical ground, his Christian ground, then indeed he, like Milton himself, could go back and find through the light of the Spirit, reading in the otherwise benighted texts of the pagans, glimmers of truth that have indeed been granted according to the Christian humanist view of Milton's time, indeed been granted to various pagans, but it has to be within the context of a wider revelation that corrects the blindness and errors of the same classical texts. Otherwise, it is an attempt to become simply what Paul called the natural man or the natural self, a humanist without the higher spirituality is simply what we now call a secular humanist. And that means to go according to the natural self as the total human identity. And if that is the case, then there is nothing left 
except the natural drives of pleasure and power. And the end of humanity seen as driven only by the natural drives of pleasure and power will end exactly as Jesus says, in a vision of fortune and fate, of fortune random occurrences in a random universe. One day you're lucky, the next day you're not. And of fate, of some inexorable system that grinds everything in its gears inscrutably. It is not a salvation. Moreover, the temptation in the way it's couched by Satan seems to suggest simply a kind of running away, contemplative, not as a means of understanding the world, of having a picture of the world, but of running away into ivory tower intellectualism, into aestheticism rather than true artistic creativity. It is a way of hiding out within a dream of elite culture and contemplation. Jesus quite rightly rejects this substitution of the humanistic for the spiritual. By doing so, he enables both himself and Milton and Milton's readers to go back and value what there is of good in classical culture. Milton is not finally abandoning classical culture by any means, as we shall see later before book four is even over. Nevertheless, the terms are intransigent, perhaps because a little bit of ill temper seems to creep in, it's true, perhaps because this might have been the temptation that Milton himself would have been most drawn by. We're always a little irritable when our own nerve is touched, and perhaps that's what's going on here, accounting for the rather irritable tone in a Jesus who otherwise is really remarkable for his balance, for his serenity, his ability to stay cool, even though he is beleaguered in the wilderness after 40 days out there. But Satan himself is losing his cool as well. This is the final rejection of the earthly kingdoms, and Satan is clearly exasperated. Milton is good at catching dramatic tones of voice, and around line 367, Satan basically throws up his hands. Since neither wealth nor honor, arms nor arts, kingdom nor empire pleases thee, nor aught by me proposed in life contemplative or active, tended on by glory or fame, what dost thou in this world? The wilderness for thee is fittest place. I found thee there, and thither will return thee. I give up. I'm throwing you back. 
you, I found you in the wilderness, and there's a reason for that. I'm just returning you to the obscurity whence you came. And he does, seemingly. But he's not giving up, even though he basically says he is. He's not giving up at all. Instead, night falls. We are not told in the gospel account that the temptation took a lot of time. But here, it, a night passes and then the next day before the third and last temptation. And it's a night in which Jesus basically doesn't get much sleep because Satan is still working. He seems to have disappeared, but he is very much still there in the darkness, creating a storm. And within that storm, all sorts of frightening and nightmarish omens and portents, ghosts, hellish furies, and so forth and so on. He's trying to intimidate and frighten Jesus. We've played good cop, in a sense, trying to entice and draw with desires. That didn't work. Now maybe we can scare you into it. You are in the grip of a titanic power, and you should be very, very afraid. You should also feel cut off, perhaps, feeling that your God has forsaken you and left you beyond reach in this fallen world. He tries to make Jesus superstitious. He tries, in fact, quite explicitly to make Jesus believe that these are all portents, that these are all omens, whereof this this ominous night that closed thee round, so many terrors, voices, prodigies may warn thee as a sure foregoing sign. What do they warn thee of? You'd better give in because, line 475, each act is rightliest done, not when it must, but when it may be best. Don't lose your chance. You're losing your main chance here. Don't lose your chance. In other words, if you put all this together, you basically get something like Macbeth. Milton is setting this up so that Satan is trying to make Jesus into a kind of Macbeth. Each act is rightly done when it may be best. The temptation to act precipitously is exactly the ambition of Macbeth. And all of the omens and oracles and so forth, exactly the same way in Macbeth, the witches enticing him with, act now, if you are ambitious, act now. To which Jesus basically shrugs. The response of Jesus to all of this frightening nightmare imagery and ominous speech-making makes me laugh every single time I read it. Line 485, me worse than wet thou finds not. 
I'm just wet. Is that the worst you got? He is not impressed at all. Other harm, those terrors which thou speaks of, did me none. I never feared they could. False portents, not sent from God, but thee. Ambitious spirit, and wouldst be thought my God. In other words, tables turned. You are still trying to work on my ambition. This is, <coughs> in the same way, a temptation of earthly kingdoms, in a different way of approaching it. And you fell by ambition. Satan is at the end of it. And he admits that he can't give up. I have to know who you are. This is no mere curiosity. I thought thee worth my nearer view because a voice at the baptism came out of the sky and called you son of God. Well, I have to find out what that means for me. And therefore, to know what more thou art than man worth naming son of God by voice from heaven, another method I must now begin. And at that moment, line 540, almost halfway through or more, book four, we get the final temptation, the temptation on the pinnacle of the temple. Satan catches Jesus up and carries him to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple. This is a temple, as footnotes might tell you, that was built by Herod the Great on the site of the original Temple of Solomon, or at least that was the story and the belief. The temptation here is a purely spiritual temptation. We've gone from earthly kingdoms to the spiritual pinnacle, not just the pinnacle on any old height, but the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan makes, at that point, this extraordinary speech using the word stand over and over again within half a dozen lines, beginning around line 550. There, stand if thou wilt stand. To stand upright will cast thee skill. I to thy father's house have brought thee, and highest placed, highest is best. Now show thy progeny. If not to stand, cast thyself down safely, if son of God. Do this, because only a son of God could do this. If you are truly a son of God, this temptation is not optional. You must do something or you will fall. If you are merely human, you must fall. Nothing can stand up here. So therefore, call upon your power. To whom does Jesus? Also it is written, Tempt not the Lord thy God, he said and stood. But Satan, smitten with amazement, fell. He stands, it's Satan who fell.
And we go on to two classical allusions. This is what I meant just a moment ago when I said Milton is by no means rejecting and washing his hands of classical learning. We get to describe Satan's fall from the pinnacle, two classical allusions in a row. The proper use of classical learning is still very much an option for Milton and for us within the right context. Satan falls and is compared, first of all, to Antaeus, one of the exploits of Hercules or Heracles to battle Antaeus, who was the son of the earth, so that every time Hercules threw him down to the earth, he rose up again stronger than before because he was drawing upon his mother's strength. Therefore, Hercules won by lifting him into the air, isolated from the earth, and grabbing him in a bear hug and crushing him as he's removed from his source of strength. The second allusion is to the Sphinx in the story of Oedipus, who, when her riddle was solved by Oedipus, casts herself headlong from the Ismenian steep, line 475. So we get one version of the hero conquering the monster or the villain by pure strength, the story of Hercules, and the other, the diametric opposite, yet equally apt, of a battle of riddles. Uh, the Theban monster of the Sphinx proposing riddles and the riddles are solved, the Sphinx defeated by words rather than by strength. Apt use of humanistic learning. And Satan falls and Jesus wins. What has gone on here? Jesus says, and this is quoting the Luke account, tempt not the Lord thy God and stands. Milton criticism then focusing upon that asks the question, is this the moment when Jesus realizes who he really is? Because we know for sure, it's explicit in book one, that when the temptation series began, Jesus did not fully know. He also was a bit bemused and mystified by the voice that came out of the sky when John baptized him in the Jordan. And he goes into the desert pondering, who am I? There have been all these signs and wonders even from before I was born. I know I'm not exactly like the other children, but I am not quite sure who and what I am. Is this the moment in which Jesus has an epiphany and suddenly realizes fully he is tempted as human? Otherwise, the whole thing is a sort of a farce. And admittedly, the first battle back in Book 6 of Paradise Lost was indeed played as a farce. The sun 
simply shows how powerful he is, reveals the full extent of his power, and Satan and the devils don't even fight. They turn tail and run and cast themselves into hell to escape him. And it is played as a farce, showing that the attempt to challenge God is simply a sham. It's simply magical thinking on the part of the devils. Is it the same here? I think not. Otherwise, the whole of Paradise Regained would be a similar type of farce, and it doesn't read like that. It reads like a book that is trying to talk to us about what it's like to live in this world. And we do not have some sort of total knowledge that we are basically invulnerable and no harm is going to come to us. The whole reason for the incarnation was to come down and out of love share the human condition. And the human condition is to live in constant threat and risk. To stand on the pinnacle, Jesus either has to exercise power that no normal human being has, call upon some sort of supernatural power, or be sustained by God. And it's the latter that happens. Jesus simply resigns himself to the will of God. And the reference, tempt not the Lord thy God, it could be referring to himself insofar as he mirrors the Father, or it could be referring to the Father himself. It's really a kind of non-question. What's important is that he resigns himself to the will of something higher, something called Father, rather than his own will. Save yourself. Use the force, Luke. But when you do that, you are always in grave danger of doing what Darth Vader did and going over to the dark side of the force. Power can be and sometimes has to be exercised in this world, but it has to be exercised selflessly as we can possibly muster. It has to be thy will be done, not my willfulness. And every single temptation has been that way. It is always a temptation of substituting the human, natural, selfish point of view and motivations for the resignation and trust. There is no guarantee. It is a matter of trust and risk. That's what faith is in this higher power, and he stands. He might not, because after all, this is a rehearsal, to speak a bit ironically, for a later period of time in which he will again be elevated, this time on a crucifix. And this time he will not escape. This time he will have to go through with a totally human death in all of the agony and horrifying nightmare imagery of the crucifixion. That will take us to Samson Agonistes, 
who is fully human, Old Testament figure, does not even have as an Old Testament figure a fully revealed knowledge of God, such as people have in the New Testament period after the coming of Christ, but who goes through also with a sacrifice and pays the price for it. Sometimes people do not escape. Sometimes God rescues. Sometimes God has the will that we should go through with it, and we have to trust that that is what we were meant to do. And that is what Jesus has done. And he gets an army of angels bringing him to safety, giving him celestial food. It's been 40 days. He finally gets to eat. And it's very good stuff. And the epic ends with a flurry of paradoxes about time that are the central meaning of the poem and a way of saying the central meaning of Christianity. Around line 606, the narrator says, now speaking to Jesus, addressing, now thou hast avenged supplanted Adam and by vanquishing temptation hast regained lost paradise. You have done it now at the temptation. What is it to regain paradise? To vanquish temptation. That is the, in a way, the only Miltonic theme. It's certainly the central one, temptation. And it is out of vanquishing temptation that we, like Jesus, regain lost paradise. Though there is always the paradox, as I say, about time. The passage goes on to say, for though that seat of earthly bliss be failed, a fairer paradise is founded now. And yet goes on to speak of when time shall be, two lines later. A fairer paradise is founded now, when time shall be, if you read the complete syntax. Now, but not yet. And that is the truth of Christianity. One more time, almost the final line, five lines from the end. The epic says, now enter and begin to save mankind. The voice had just gotten done saying, paradise has been regained, but now enter and begin. It's paradoxical, but it is the paradox at the heart of Christianity. The Messiah has come, the redemption has been accomplished, and yet we are still waiting. Both things are true. We cannot fully understand that, and yet somehow, it's meaningful to something deep inside us. We will go on to Samson Agonistes next week.